Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot button internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Good morning. Welcome to another um, Cyber Law and Business Report. This is Bennett Kelly talking to you live from um, Santa Monica, California, the Internet Law Center here in the heart of Silicon Beach. Our first guest today is Eric Bogosian, who is the author of Operation Nemesis, the assassination plot that avenged the Armenian genocide. And the acclaimed writer and actor um, has written several books but this is this is your first work of nonfiction, right that's right yeah and the starting point of the book is an assassination attempt or actually a successful assassination in berlin in 1920s of one of the main perpetrators of the armenian genocide i had heard this story a student living in berlin in 1921, which is about five years after the genocide, because the genocide happened during World War One, he had. This was a young man who had uh, survived the genocide, or so he claimed later. Ended up in Berlin as an engineering student, and one day was walking down the street and recognized Talat Pasha, who was in hiding in Berlin at the time because the British had occupied uh, Turkey at this point, and the man was wanted for war crimes. And this young man, Sulkaman Tetlerian, uh, went home, had all these nightmares in which his uh, murdered mother, murdered by the Turks, came to him in a dream and said, how can you let this man live? So he, so he got a handgun and he shot Talat and he killed him and he was arrested and there was a big trial uh, which the international community was very interested in. And at the trial, basically, the, what people believed was was that this young man had survived the massacre, seen his whole family murdered, 
And so they, in a way, they couldn't blame him for gunning down Talat. And he was acquitted based on sort of a notion of, let's say, temporary insanity. Um, that was the story that I had heard about 10 years ago. And about nine years ago, I decided to write a screenplay based on this fairly straightforward story, which is pretty well known in the Armenian community and even has been reported in um, Samantha Power begins her book, A Problem from Hell, with this story. Very dramatic, perfect for a movie. I sat down to start writing the screenplay. You can get the court transcript online. You can just type in Talat Pasha assassination trial and up it pops. So I had all the information, or I thought I had all the information that I needed to write the screenplay. When I began the screenplay, I started doing deeper research, and it didn't take long for me to discover an obscure French book uh, published in the 1980s by a journalist named Jacques de Rogier, which explains that Tetlerian was not simply an engineering student. He didn't just happen upon Talat. And he had never seen the massacres, and he wasn't in Turkey during the massacres. In fact, he was a trained assassin who had specifically been sent to Berlin to hunt down and kill Talat. And his, this operation was based in Boston, Massachusetts, and did not just send uh, Tetlerian into Berlin, but sent uh, operatives all over Europe, and they successfully murdered I should murdered, assassinated six major Turkish leaders who were responsible for the genocide. In effect, they wiped out the entire leadership of the Ottoman Empire or Turkey who were responsible for the genocide. They pretty much knocked off about three quarters of the men responsible. It's an astounding story. And once I learned the full story, I felt it was too it was too complex, it was too interesting in all its facets to simply condense it into a screenplay, and so I began to research this book, which required that I more fully understand the context in which it all happened, and a little bit of Armenian history, Turkish history, Russian history, World War I history, all those things are needed in order to understand how this all came down, as well as as best as I could, find out as much as I could about these, this series of assassinations. The group called themselves Operation Nemesis. They were active between 19, in 1920, 1921, and then in 1922 they were told by higher-ups to shut the operation down, and they went to ground, and the men just faded back into obscurity, and most of them lived to be old men, and this has been a secret for 90 years. And one footnote on the story of the trial, I mean, it is somewhat ironic that uh, in all places, Berlin, that they, they were moved by the tale of the genocide to acquit him, given what would happen just a decade later. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Tetlerian's defender at the end of the trial makes a speech in which he says, well, you know, it's hard for us to understand that people could do the kinds of things that they did do because they talk about the genocide. They didn't call it genocide at the time, but they talk about it at length at trial. I mean, they basically indict Pollock and say he deserved it. 
And uh, they said, well, this sort of thing only happens, you know, in Asiatic countries. We here in the civilized world could never contemplate doing this sort of thing to our own citizenry. And, of course, like you said, uh, only a couple of decades later, they are... In fact, the Armenian genocide is in many ways a dress rehearsal or a template for what would happen to the Jews in Germany. Germany and Turkey, or Germany and the Ottoman Empire, were allies in World War I, and there were many, many German soldiers stationed in Turkey at this time, and, and the, the Germans were aided and abetted the Turks in exterminating the Armenians. They didn't want to talk about that, and in fact, still a suppressed, a suppressed fact of what happened during World War I. There are archives that are still waiting to be opened in Germany, where there's further proof of their alliance uh, in this regard with the Turks. But at the moment of the trial, as Tetlerian was on trial, Germany was still negotiating their, the terms of the peace treaty at the end of the war. They didn't want any more talk about atrocities that they may have committed during the war, and so they wanted to paint the Turks with the blackest brush they could. And uh, that's part of what happened at the trial. And then, of course, yeah. years years later, Hitler would famously say, "You know, who remembers the Armenians?" And right. So, this book is often kind of oversimplified as saying, "Well, it's kind of like you know, more Ar- Armenian tale uh, like Munich." But you know, unlike Munich, this is not uh, an operation run by Mossad. It is not an operation run, you know using all sorts of the, the latest technology. As you said, this is run out of a suburb in Boston in a, in a pre-technological era. Yeah, the, the, uh, the men who are running the operation in the United States, the guys who are doing the financial and overall logistical operation, are uh, one guy is a CPA in Albany. Another is a life insurance salesman from Hartford a uh, small-time uh, editor out of Boston. These men, some of their letters got published around the same time that my book came out, and really looking at it, it's astounding that they were able to pull this off. They pretty much got everyone they targeted. There was one man, Dr. Nazim, who escaped their group, but Nazim was just a few years later hanged by Mustafa Kemal Ataturk. And the other man who did not, they didn't. They couldn't get their hands on was Enver Pasha, who was in Soviet Russia by this point. The Soviets themselves decided they had had enough of him, and they hunted him down and they killed him as well. They were they were wary of Islamic. Re- well, he was trying to foster Islamic revolution in the Soviets. But yeah, it's in, it's incredible that they that they pulled this off. Also, this is it, it's so. I think it's always important when looking at anything in history to remember that. Uh, people are not experiencing things the way we experience them. And so uh, at this time, in 1920, the primary mass media form is the newspaper. We don't even have radio yet. They have no way to call anybody. Things are done either by ciphered telegram or by coded letters, which take, you know, at least two weeks to cross the Atlantic. So they have a hard time. They don't always know exactly what's going on at any moment other than obviously once somebody gets killed there are they send telegrams to each other and they know within hours that it happened now one one thing you've mentioned is that 
not only were the the killings, um, you know, kind of retribution, you know, there some you know in vigilante justice for people from the Armenian genocide who, who had escaped because of the confusion of World War One. It also had a long term histor- historical impact in that it it cleared the way for Ataturk to assume power in Turkey. Yeah, there were. That was one of the things that I was really interested in this story. Usually, when Armenians or most historians talk about the Armenian genocide, they seem to see it as something happening within the borders of the Ottoman Empire or Turkey, and that's it. And and of course, that's where most of the killings happened there and in northern Syria. But contextualize it more, you see other patterns evolve. Very importantly, the first thing that shows up is British interest in oil in the Middle East and their need to preserve their foothold, particularly at the end of World War I, grabbing Mesopotamia, which we now call Iraq. I don't know if it's a coincidence, but the day after Talat is killed on March 15, 1921, on March 16, 1921, the country of Iraq is born in Egypt, in Cairo, uh, and friends of some of the men who aided and abetted the Armenians, British intelligence agents, a man named Aubrey Herbert and Gertrude Bell, Lawrence of Arabia, all these people are friends with each other. They are very much responsible for establishing this new country of Iraq, which of course is basically a big oil barrel in the desert. That's what Iraq is. It's not a real country. In the realm of the Turkish empire itself or the ottoman empire and and i think it's really important i mean the ottoman empire isn't some arcane topic that's off in some you know far off time and far away from us in fact to understand what's going on in the middle east today it behooves anyone to kind of understand the ottoman empire ottoman empire was there for 600 years it was it was an islamic empire run by the turks and at the uh, end of the 19th century, the Turks were well aware that they were losing their grip on this empire. Basically, Europe was just pulling it to pieces. And they decided that there should be some kind of progressive and modernist movement, a country that has a monarchy, but also a parliament like Britain. That would be what they were moving toward. And the young Turks were the people and some progressive Armenians we're trying to get this to happen, to push the Sultan aside and set up a constitutional government. And they did have a revolution in 1908. So there is this movement going on through the Young Turks. Eventually, the Young Turks find that they kind of have a tiger by the tail and aren't terribly successful at running the country. And uh, eventually, during World War One, decide that somehow killing all the Armenians is going to move their chess piece across the board. They're going to take away what the Armenians own, and they're going to Turkify, that's their term, Turkify the country. When you get to the end of World War I, all that's left is what we see today on a map we call Turkey, the Republic of Turkey. This was, this was an idea. They understood that they were going to have to let go of certain lands, and they did. Uh, first the Balkans, Greece, and then eventually the Arab states. But they wanted to start this new Republic of Turkey. And Talat Pasha, Enver Pasha, Jamal Pasha, who was also assassinated by Operation Nemesis, these men were the former leaders 
But they had all been convicted of war crimes and trials uh, right after the war, and had all run away, escaped, and were in exile. The last man standing was Mustafa Kemal, who was leading the insurrection against the British. It was like an ongoing civil war that kept going at the end of World War One. He was successful. He eventually put the British and the French and the Greeks and the Armenians in a, situ- in a position where basically this war would go on forever if they, didn't, if they didn't give up. And so they did give up. And Mustafa Kemal was able to initiate, sorry about that, it's a truck out there, <laughs> the uh, Republic of Turkey. And that's the Republic of Turkey we know to this day, 1923 to the present. The thing is, is that I think it's, it's pretty clear, if you look at the history carefully, that Talat Pasha and Bir Pasha, they saw Mustafa Kemal as a kind of a junior guy, a general who would take care of business, and then they could return to power once he had cleaned everything up and chased the Brits out. The truth is, is that Mustafa Kemal had no intention of letting them come back, and in fact, he didn't let them come back, and in fact, they were all dead by the mid-1920s leaving one man standing, Mustafa Kemal. And if you look at Mustafa Kemal, who later called himself Ataturk, and if you look at this man carefully, you see somebody who is a a real pragmatist. And I really wonder to what degree the British wanted him in power. There had to be somebody in power, and there had to be somebody they could work with. They tried to establish a puppet sultan, a sultanic government, but... uh, they weren't able to do that. Kabal basically overpowered all of them. And uh, Ataturk is, is really an amazing leader in the, in the history of Turkey, and he's re- revered to this day there as practically a god in that country. He continued to harass and kill Armenians at the end of the war in the, in the years 1919, 1920, right through this period, chasing them all into what is now the Republic of Armenia, and then the Soviets came in and they basically protected them and it became part of the Soviet Empire. At any rate, if you look at this from that perspective, Operation Nemesis basically does the dirty work that Kamal needed to have done. I mean, I don't know if he needed everybody killed, but he wasn't planning to let those guys back into the country. He was going to take it for himself if he did. You're listening to Cyber Law and Business Report on webmasterradio.fm. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Celebrating the best in online advertising, the Web Marketing Association presents the 14th Annual Internet Advertising Competition Awards. Submit your banner ads, email ads, rich media, online newsletters, websites, and social media campaigns now by going to iacaward.org. Deadline for entries is February 15th, 2016. All winners will have their entry highlighted on the Internet Advertising Competition website, as well as receive a handsome trophy to display or a personalized certificate of achievement. Be honored among your online advertising peers by submitting your entry into the Web Marketing Association's 14th Annual Internet Advertising Competition Awards. Submit your entry today at iacaward.org. That's iacaward.org. Whether you are an online business or domain name investor, you need access to the best names. With over 270 million domains already registered, finding the right names at the best price requires a great wingman. 
Namejet.com puts you in the pilot seat by giving you fast and unparalleled access to some of the best premium and expired domain names on earth. As the number one domain name auction platform, Namejet.com is the best place to find domains for your business or investment. So light the afterburners to the domain name aftermarket and fly over to Namejet.com at mock speed to get great domains today. Namejet.com. Johnson, what's this mantis I keep hearing about? Do we need to call an exterminator? No, sir. Moby Mantis is our new SMS marketing tool. SM what? SMS. Text messaging. Moby Mantis lets us communicate directly with our customers in real time. We can send promos, coupons. It even lets our customers market for us by sharing offers with their friends online. It's been great for business. Hmm. Sounds expensive. Actually, I sign us up for an extended free trial. It hasn't cost us a dime. Good work, Johnson. I guess the only thing we'll be exterminating is the competition. To get your free extended trial of Moby Mantis, text RADIO to 21691. That's RADIO to 21691 for Moby Mantis. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. And we're back. Now, obviously... You grew up with your, your grandpa. Was it your grandfather? Was a survivor yeah. of, of the the genocide, and you know, growing up in the era that we grew up in was also the post-war era. We became aware, aware of the Holocaust, and you know, I just remember hearing this: "This never again. It's never going to happen again." And then you know, Cambodia happens. Okay, well, that's over there, and then it happens again in Europe with Bosnia, and then Rwanda, and you know, as you. Being someone who has gen- genocide very much part of your your culture and your cultural identity, what was it like going through the nineties when all of a sudden you know Samantha Powers details you know we, the age of genocide just was was in full bloom? Well, it was for me. It was the sort of enlightenment for me in terms of understanding what had happened to the Armenians. My knowledge of what had happened to Armenians during World War One was only came to me in bits and pieces. And like many Armenians, I heard about it from my grandparents, and it was almost mythic. It happened a long time ago. It happened in a faraway place. Right. I wasn't even sure where, in like the Middle East or something. And that was about all I needed to know. And here I was growing up in the United States, and it all just seemed like a very bad thing that happened a long time ago. When in the 90s, when I was keeping track of what was happening in Serbia and the other former Yugoslavia countries, it hit me suddenly that what I was seeing was had to be very similar to what had happened to my own family. And this was part of my enlightenment and need to learn more about it. I mean, the truth is, is that in terms of the 20th century, we look at what happened to the Jews in Germany as almost unique, and perhaps it is both what happened to the Jews and what happened to the Armenians. What happens in every genocide is is so mind-boggling, we really can't wrap our minds around it, but what the Germans did with the Jews was so it, it was so modern in the way that they right. they were able to streamline their killing machine. This is part of what really has blown everyone's minds ever since then, and, and, and to contemplate it is it's incomprehensible. But the truth is, is that what we're really seeing is technology coming in and amping up 
what has always been part of the way humans wage war on each other or when they invade areas. And so here in the United States, when the settlers came to the, the British settlers and other settlers came, the first thing they did was commit genocide on the indigenous people, whether it was the Spaniards in the, down in Central and Southern America, or whether it was here up in North America, uh, movement of people like moving the Cherokees out of the Carolinas to the West, the Trail of Tears. This is all typical genocidal actions. And if people die on the way as they're being moved, this was standard operating procedure in the 19th century. It was done again and again and again. People were moved, people were removed, and then it reaches these peaks with the Armenians and with the Jews where technology comes in. And a lot of the technologies were similar for the Armenians and the Jews, use of railroad cars, use of mass media to make people think that something's happening that isn't actually happening, you're being moved to another place, it's, we're not actually going to kill you understanding that the world is watching you while you're doing it, and so you have to create some kind of cover story, which is we're just moving them over here, we're not actually going to kill them, all of that. But the more, as we move through the history from then through now, it just keeps happening again and again. It's, it's part of war, actually. Most genocides happen during wartime, and it's, it's just part of the way things happen. As we look at the technology of it all, this is we're seeing an ever-changing landscape because technology enhances genocide, but it also interferes with genocide because today, when we learn that something is happening like this, hopefully, you know, people tell each other and pressure is exerted and hopefully that something is done. Although, as Samantha Power pointed out, it's often ineffectual or comes across other issues that are political, very political. Right, right. when you're talking about acts of genocide, you know, but not the genocide itself, that's a problem. Um, You know, one thing, the book does a good job of explaining how this is not like Munich. It is because of, you know, the technology and doesn't have a whole government apparatus behind it. But, you know, at the end of Munich, there's this kind of reflection, the consequences of what what was done, and you yourself reflect on that. You say that op- doesn't make what Operation Nemesis did legal. One question that surrounds these assassinations is this. If you desire a world where justice prevails, then you must rely on laws. If you rely on laws, they must be universal. Laws can't be superseded simply because some feel that they are wrong or because a person knows he has the right to break them. We live in a world where we attempt to achieve consistency in the rule of law. The concept of law demands it. Yet the men and women of Operation Nemesis did what governments could not. They were appealing to a higher final justice, one that exists somewhere between heaven and earth. And so sitting today looking at what they did, you have the verdict that this is justified. Yes. I think... No matter how many laws we bring into play or religious commands, commandments, we have to live in the situation we find ourselves. What is happening in the case of uh, the Turks versus the Armenians during World War I or the Germans versus the Jews in World War II is a very modern thing because you have leaders 
who can insulate themselves far above the the victims and put into motion these massive forces simply by their will to do it. Tala clearly, from interviews with Ambassador Morgenthau, is quite glib about what he's doing to the Armenians. Uh, I don't know enough about the Holocaust to really... I've read various quotes from Nazi leaders, but they were very careful about what they said. The, the, the point is, is that if there's any definition of evil, these are evil actions. And because they are structured in such a way to insulate the criminals from the crime, there may not be a legal way to get to them. And so I think you have to take each case in and of itself. And in this instance, and I talk in the book about acts of violence that I can't support, because in the 19s, in the decades later, there were assassinations of Turkish diplomats, which I don't think anybody in their right conscience can really support this, because these, these men, I mean, to kill these Turkish diplomats in the 1980s, these men had nothing to do with what happened to the Armenians in 1915. They may have inherited the structure, and they may have continued to deny the, the genocide, which was reprehensible, but to gun them down is a different, it doesn't seem right. I, no. I, I mean, I think every person has to look in their heart of what they think is right and wrong. And sometimes it is going to extend, those ideas are going to extend past whatever normal structures of law we, we've established. Well, one last question. The book you know, is released on the 100th anniversary, you know, concurrent with the 100th anniversary of the genocide. And surprisingly, it the genocide is still a political issue both here in the United States and in Turkey. What do you feel about the United States you know, formally passing a resolution recognizing the genocide? How important is that to you as an Armenian? Well, a resolution would certainly, and they have, they have passed resolutions in the past. Uh, back in the 1950s, there was a resolution. However, the, car, the contemporary culture in the United States government is, is that no one is to use the term genocide to talk about what the Turks did to the Armenians and the Greeks and the Nestorians during, or the Christian people of uh, the Ottoman Empire in World War One. I. I mean, it would formalize it. It would establish it. I think more importantly, there just needs to be, they have to stop with this repression of anybody who uses the term genocide. I think that our president used the term Prior to being president, I don't see why he can't use it now. And I would say that, if I can get out on a limb here with this, but, you know, this uh, tail wagging the dog situation where a client state of the United States, as we give them a huge amount of aid, and we have the same situation with Israel, where they tell us how, what we're supposed to say, what we're supposed to do, and how we're supposed to think, is absurd. And I think it, it just belies the continuing decadence of our empire, because we allow these people who are really should be beholden to us, we certainly give them enough aid and have given them billions in aid over the years, why we have to do what they tell us to do is absurd. Uh, on a day-to-day -day situation, within, and part of this decadence, I think, has a lot to do with the political structure we live with today. So in the government that we have, they're making these decisions day to day. They want to land jets in Turkey right. in order to fight the war over there. 
and Turkey says you can't land the jets unless you do what we say. And so that's the situation we found ourselves in. You know, I think once a century you get a Teddy Roosevelt or a leader who is willing to stand up to the baloney, uh, but most politicians buckle under the typical forces that they're brought to. This is the, you know, it's all about oil. Once the right. oil is gone in the Middle East, this will, none of this will be an issue anymore. There won't even be any wars there anymore. There'll be nothing there. Quick, real last, oil. quick real last question. You, you mentioned early on that your grandfather said, if you see a Turk, kill him. What happened the first time you met a Turk? Yeah, he, the, I first heard those words when I was a little boy. I was probably four years old when I first heard it. I first met my first Turk when I was a freshman in college at the University of Chicago. Somebody introduced me to this guy. They said, he's Turkish. And today I have no idea what I thought I was thinking or doing, whether I thought I was being clever or whatever. But I, we were at lunch in the cafeteria. I leaned across to him and I said, you better keep your door locked at night and the guy the blood just ran from his face and he never spoke to me again i i think that was not cool to say that to this student um what would have been more productive would be to have conversation with him about his own history because we are talking about turkish history right but they need to know it too if they don't know it they can't be fully who they are. And since then, especially working on this book, I've become friends with um, many uh, Turks and significant Turkish scholars who've done very, very important work, Taner Akcham being the number one on on this topic of the genocide. And, uh, you know, they need to own it. They do own it. Those people do the work that they need to do. Just like in this country, there had to be somebody who said, you know, the Indians are not bad people. We did bad things to the Indians. Here's a book, you know, Bury My Heart and Wounded Knee or whatever yeah. the book is. And we learn. We learn what had happened. We need to learn our own history. And likewise, the Turks need to learn their history. Well, it's spelled out in Operation Nemesis. Eric Bogosian, I really want to thank you for joining us. And um, I hope you do consider making it into a movie. Um, thanks again. Uh, yes, we're working on And I'm at the Miami Book Fair, I guess. Um, very soon, I think the 21st. So, Thank you very much. Thanks. Take care. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Looking for a better way to get more traffic and interaction to your Facebook page? Imagine Facebook interactivity on your page like you've never seen. Introducing your new Facebook marketing fix, so social, the new and revolutionary way to easily manage and automate your Facebook contest and sweepstakes. Create a fun, easy-to-win contest by writing a simple Facebook post. Watch your post go more viral and generate loads of interaction. Track your traffic and generate email lists with ease. So social is mobile-friendly and complies with Facebook terms of service. Let So Social give your Facebook page some flash today. Zoom over to zosocial.com. Hey, this is Danny Sullivan to talk to you about Bruce Clay Incorporated. They've made Inc. Magazine's list of growing private businesses and have exhibited and sponsored at my conferences since the very beginning. You've seen their search engine relationship chart or you've read their SEO code of ethics, so you know their SEO experts, but did you know they can help you with PBC, web analytics, web design, marketing strategy, promotion, and branding? Yep, get everything you need for success in the online marketplace. You can check it out from the professionals at Bruce Clay Incorporated. For over 10 years with offices worldwide, they've got the answers you need. Check them out today at bruceclay.com. 
Reinventing keyword research, simplifying campaign optimization, redefining competitive analysis. SpyFu brings you an entirely new way to find the most profitable keywords for your SEO and PPC campaigns. New tools, new data, and a brand new look. We've streamlined SpyFu so that you can optimize your search engine marketing more efficiently, more accurately, and more intuitively. Visit SpyFu.com. That's S-P-Y-F-U.com. And start downloading your competitors' keywords now. Try it free. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. The following is an encore segment of Cyber Law and Business Report. Thanks to um, Bob Bodell, um, I was able to get in touch with Tom McMillan, um, who is one of the greatest players in ACC history, played 11 seasons in the National Basketball Association, a Rhodes Scholar and the tallest member of Congress ever. Um, but more importantly, he was a member of the 1972 Olympic team. And Tom, are you with us? Yes, I am. Good to be on. Thank you. I appreciate you coming on to help us kind of commemorate um, Munich 40 years later. But very briefly, I want to start off. You were the tallest member of Congress, and you also served what I believe the shortest member of Congress um, in your delegation was Barbara Mikulski, was it? Was she not? Well, that's correct. I, I always wondered whether that the shortest was correct because you go way back uh, in history. There's probably there had to be a few congressmen that were maybe shorter than 411, but. Uh, there, there haven't been any taller than six eleven. We know that. So, um, so let's talk a little bit. Let's do the lead up to how you got to be an Olympian. And you were uh, the number one high school player in America, and recruited heavily recruited by uh, Lefty Rizal, Dean Smith. Uh, what made you choose Maryland? So, getting to other inequities, though, um, we're going to talk a little bit about the uh, the games in Munich. So. You had been an, an All-American and were invited to be part of the, the 72 Olympic team. And what's interesting in looking into this, I, you know, everyone is familiar with the fact that you know, what happened in Munich was uh, the first loss for a U.S. basketball team in the Olympics. But I wasn't aware that we had actually we'd failed to get a medal in the Pan-American Games the year, the year before. And so you have this team coming off that, um, but it was different players, of course. And so, um, but there was a lot of controversy over who was part of the team, both in terms of the coaching and the players. And, um, you know, for example, why wasn't Wooden um, asked or why wasn't Bill Walton part of the team? And uh, what are your recollections about that? Well, as far as the coach goes, um, you know, that was pretty much an internal uh, Olympic uh, committee issue. Uh, you know, Wooden would have been a great coach. And as you know, Dean Smith coached uh, the next time around. Uh, Hank Iva had been around a long time. He was a known figure, and he had had a uh, you know an exceptional record. But it was true that I think his style of play wasn't was more more traditional than the players that we had on the team. Uh, so I think that uh, a faster style of play may, may have been more. More, uh, I think, in line with the kind of talent we had, um, and uh, the players. You know, Bill Walton didn't play. He obviously was a great college player. He would have been a tremendous help in that game uh, or in the whole Olympics, quite frankly. But you know, for some reason, he decided not to play. Yeah, I think what he asked if because his doctors said that uh, 
Yeah, they were they, they were concerned about him um, doing going through the the tryout process. He said he would do it if he didn't have to do tryouts, and, and the coach said no. Um, and no, so, and, I, and you know, the tryout was pretty rigorous. Uh, I mean, we were doing two a day workouts in Hawaii, and it was just very very exhausting. And uh, you know, without air conditioning and in the hot of the summer, it was uh, pretty stifling. And I think I, I saw watched some of the clips, and I I, I think it was. Mike Bannum, who said that you know we we saw that we were going to Honolulu and we thought this is great we're going to be by the beach and everything's going to be wonderful. We didn't know that we had just joined the Navy. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. It was pretty rough. I mean, it was Pearl Harbor and we were Reveille, right? in barracks yeah. and we were just we were. Uh, I mean, it wasn't. It was pretty uh, pretty rigorous camp. So. Um, yeah, obviously you made the team, and a number of other you know famous players um, who are now well known. You know Phil Collins um, um, made the team, and so then you, you get to Munich, and you enter the Olympic Stadium. What was that like to, to be walk, be a member of the Olympic team, and walk into um, the, the stadium? I think that's probably one of the most memorable experiences because when you walk into the Olympic Stadium, you're, you know, you're wearing USA and, you know, the crowds are cheering. Munich's a great town. Uh, it was a great place for the Olympics. And uh, that's sort of the penultimate moment for an athlete to, to be in the opening ceremony. So there's a high point to that. But, you know, quickly it fades away and you start. We had to practice diligently and, uh, we had to train, and your focus gets more on that in the upcoming games, although in the beginning they weren't very challenging. But we had to nevertheless worry about getting ready, which really the distraction of the Olympics you couldn't really be be part of. And you know, you're, obviously you're in a village. What, what type of, what's the interaction like with the players? You know, there was some interaction. It's interesting, though, as I said, you get to know a few of the other players and you talk to them. It's, you know, it's a big village. You go to this common dining area and, but you know, there's always like these things. You, 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 you're only there for a couple of weeks. You don't have time to make a lot of friends. You, you meet people, but you're more or less sticking to your team because that's the, that's sort of the inculcation, the process that you're going through, which is you've got to be very, very focused, very dedicated. And as a result, you don't you don't get a lot of the external experiences of uh, of the Olympics, as Michael Phelps said. You know, he goes to these towns, he only sees the swimming pool. I mean, there's a lot of truth to that. <laughs> yeah, it's true. He he looks down too. He doesn't look up for the most part. And uh, yeah, I think the bottom of the swimming pool is the same everywhere. Um, now you um, talking about being focused uh, in the initial rounds of uh, play, um, you guys beat. Japan by 66 points, Egypt by 65 points. Had you ever had a victory that lopsided before? No, in high school and probably in college when I was a freshman, we had some pretty big victories. But uh, it, uh, you know, that's sort of a false confidence because while those teams were still struggling to get their programs off the ground, we knew that there were some real talented teams that we were going to meet. So you still have to take it very seriously, even though the, the couple of games were very easy. No, and then um, then things did get very serious on um, September fifth, the 
the Israeli athletes were were taken hostage. And you, where were you when you heard about that? We woke up that morning and we heard the commotion. You could see it on TV. ABC was live in our village. Not you, know, you could actually watch the telecast or walk over and see the the, the part of the compound where the terrorists were uh, were positioned. With it. Yeah, I mean, we all did. I, I don't even think we practiced that day. I think, I think that every, I think the whole Olympic Village was in a state of suspended anim, suspend, suspension because no one knew what was going to happen. And um, and so while that's happening, everything's in suspension, and then of course it unfolds, and who can forget? You know, Jim McKay's. Um, they're all gone. Um, you know. I, is, is that how you learned that they were they were killed through Jim McKay, or it, it just the buzz? I little... think so because you know we saw the helicopters leave the village. You could see the lights, but uh, I don't think I, I think obviously we we heard rumors. You know the the, the the word went around very quickly, but then of course it was confirmed on television. And um, we, we when when this. Then when they were first taken, you know, did the U.S. Olympic Committee get you know, brief you or say anything, or did there was just so much confusion there was, there was nothing they could do? You really got your messages through your team, through your managers, and so forth. So we knew that there was going to be a memorial, but we didn't know what was going to happen to the Olympics, and there was discussion of even canceling them. So, um, what, and what did you, you know? Think? Even though many of us felt that was a such a tragic attack on the village that many of us felt maybe they should cancel it, but I certainly felt that way. But in retrospect, I think that would have been a mistake because they would have won. If we've learned one thing in terrorism, it's not to it's not let the terrorists you know change your world. Uh, and uh, so I think it was important that they didn't cancel the Olympics. Was was it hard to grasp that something like that could happen? That um, you know, an, an event designed to present, you know, promote world brotherhood, and well, that was the surreal nature of it. Is that you have that thing, this terrible attack going on in the village, which is so foreign to a platform built for sport, and uh, here we are, young, the young kids, young young ad- adults coming over there, and and here we're thinking the Olympics are the this great panacea, you know, brother, brotherhood and sport and all that. And then to see it was really ended up being so tragic an outcome was, it was a very sobering experience. And um, now 40 years later, you know, and I guess every, this will come up every five, five Olympics. You know, you're going to have a, a, a round number um, you know, it's going to be twenty, forty, sixty, and so we now have the fortieth anniversary of the of the tragedy. What What do you think would have been appropriate for the Olympic Committee to do um, this time? I think they should have had a moment of silence during the opening ceremony. I think that would have been a very appropriate for lots of reasons. One is to to pay homage to those athletes, but to also to pay homage to to put, pay. Homage to uh, to a world that's had to suffer through many t- other terrorist attacks. Sure. This thing has been a plague on the world, and that uh, it was appropriate to take a, a time out and just uh, and just remember. Um, 
and I'm surprised they did not do that. I would have been wholeheartedly in support of it. It is disappointing. Um, so we're going to take a short break, um, but when we come back, we're going to be Tom's going to stay with us, and we're going to talk about the gold medal game, um, the controversial last three seconds, and, um, and and more after these messages from Webmaster Radio. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Rise links and web indexes. Take a bow to the largest link map in the world. Majestic SEO. Majestic SEO wields its virtual sort with speed and accuracy to deliver detailed reports of your company's link data and that of your competition. Let Majestic SEO make you your own king of Internet marketers and join the crusade of clients and agencies that have chosen the noble choice for link intelligence. MajesticSEO.com Maximize ROI to use your time and let Majestic wield its mighty sword. MajesticSEO.com It's good to be king. MySEOTool.com is your all-in-one SEO management resource. MySEOTool.com makes it easy to optimize and oversee all of your SEO efforts. Line-by-line detailed reports help you identify any problems and show you how to fix them. MySEOTool.com is completely automated. Once you use it, you will see a rise in your search rankings and traffic. Try MySEOTool risk-free today. Go to MySEOTool.com. MySEOTool.com. Oh, yeah. My day is done. Time for happy hour. You're already done for the day? Yeah, because I use CertifiedKnowledge.org. Their PPC tools literally save me hours every day. How do you keep on top of all of Google's new features? Easy. With Certified Knowledge, their interactive learning modules keep me up to date. And if there's something I don't know, I can watch their video lessons without having to hunt around the Google help files. Great. I'm ready to expand my knowledge. Hi, I'm Brett Geddes. I'm the only leader officially supported by Google to teach the advanced track of the AdWords Seminars for Success. I personally recommend CertifiedKnowledge.org as your one-stop shop for all your PPC needs. Learn. Optimize. Connect. Be smart. Go to CertifiedKnowledge.org now. Welcome to Domain Masters, the longest-running podcast where we teach you to be the master of your domain. Master of your domain. We discuss domains from many different perspectives, including the legal rights of owners and trademark holders, domain values, and monetization strategies. We show you how to utilize domains to drive traffic to your business so you can gain favorable search engine rankings. We discuss power tools of the trade with the power players of the industry every week right here on Domain Masters. Wednesdays at 5 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Pacific, or on demand anytime inside the Internet Marketing Channel, only on webmasterradio.fm. Blog, blog, blog. Webmasterradio.fm. We're the talk of the town. Webmasterradio.fm. Thanks for listening. Webmasterradio.fm. We're everywhere. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. 
And we're back. This is Ben Kelly. You're listening to the Cyberlaw Business Report. And our special guest is former congressman and Olympian Tom McMillan, who was a member of the 1972 U.S. basketball team and uh, which participated in what is still to this day the most controversial game in Olympic history. And um, Tom, it, it seemed that it all comes down to um, the final minutes, um, the U.S. was down by eight with about five minutes to play. And as you were talking earlier, the, the slow style of play was really seen to be holding you guys back. And I've seen clips to where the players have said that they decided to take over and play their way. Is that, is that what happened? Well, I think that's right. I mean, the players started running more. And uh, obviously, we had to... Uh, up tempo the game because we were behind and we had to do something differently and so uh, we were able to you know narrow that lead I'm Tom yeah thank you look forward to, to meeting sometime and uh, good luck with the show thank you very much I appreciate it um, this is Bennett Kelly you've been listening to Cyber Law and Business Report once again I want to thank Tom McMillan for being a good sport and joining us um, I think he gets a gold medal for his participation today and um that's all we have for you. Hope you'll join us next week on another edition of Cyber Law and Business Report. Check out um, our website, internetlawcenter.net, to get more information about the Internet Law Center and, and um, particularly our newsletter, Cyber Report. So court is adjourned. Have a good week. This has been a presentation of WebmasterRadio.fm, the world's largest business-to-business radio and podcast network. We welcome you to sample past episodes of this program, as well as our complete library of programs, on demand or on the air via our 24-7 live audio stream at www.WebmasterRadio.fm. Acceleration of the game that made a difference. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.